it is one of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 27. Um, the final verse that we will read is the verse that I just felt pressed on my heart when I thought I was retiring a few years ago and uh, claimed this and continue to. Psalm 27, beginning with verse one, think of David writing this psalm. The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. And here's that verse. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire or to meditate in his temple. How sweet uh, those words that the great warrior wrote under the inspiration of God's spirit. We turn then to our gospel lesson. It's from John's gospel. This time the beautiful prologue, chapter one, uh, we'll read down through verse 14. And I mentioned in the first service that I love a particular practice in uh, the liturgical churches. Don't worry, I'm not gonna try to introduce it here. But, but it really visually at this point in the service is very beautiful because even in those churches that no longer actually preach the gospel, uh, they begin with the Old Testament lesson and then the, well, with the Psalter, then the Old Testament lesson, then the epistle lesson, and then they enter with the gospel and everyone stands and the gospel is read to show that it is only through the gospel of Jesus Christ that we can rightly understand the Old Testament, the epistles, the, the Psalter or anything else. So here it is, John chapter one, beginning with verse one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The gospel of Christ, thanks be to God. And then our text uh, from 1 John chapter 1, 
Uh, those of you who weren't with us last week, uh, my first week with you, I told you that my plan was for the near future to be preaching through 1 John, but for the first time in my ministry, I've taught 1 John in the past, uh, I've always started with 1 John 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, this time I thought that in order to uh, give you some introduction as to why I thought we should be studying that, I went to John's summary in chapter 5. And if you weren't here and you have a desire to get that summary, you can probably find it online or in our app. But uh, the point was that John was showing in chapter 5 the opening verses and then stated plainly in verse 13 of chapter 5 why he wrote this little work. Uh, John uh, had a way of telling us at the end of his works why he'd written it. So as we said last week, at the end of this gospel that we just uh, read, in the second to the last chapter, the final verse of it, uh, John said, Jesus did many other signs uh, than those that I've recorded, but I've recorded these so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. And so we saw that at the in verse 13 of chapter 5, he said the reason that he wrote this little work was in order that those who had believed in Jesus might know that we have eternal life. So this is the supreme book in the Bible put here for those times when we wonder, am I the real thing? Have I really put my faith in Christ savingly is the Holy Spirit living in me. Have I been born anew, born from above, born of the Spirit? This book is written for it. And as we saw in the first three verses of chapter 5, he brings together <clears throat> the three tests that we are to apply and winds them all together. So it was a good place to begin by saying, these are the tests that we're going to be uh, looking at as we study this book and I called them vital signs. They are the way that we take the blood pressure, pulse, and respiration of the spirit and tell, am I alive or dead spiritually? Uh, they address troubles that apparently this church was facing. It's easy to reconstruct the problems that John was facing. There was clearly a doctrinal issue, a matter of the mind. There was a denial that Jesus was actually God's son come in human flesh. There was an ethical component. There was clearly a teaching that, that said it doesn't matter whether or not you're sinning, it's not going to affect your state with God. And there was a relational component. It was a divisive teaching that was tearing the church apart. And John talks about people leaving because of all the divisions because they weren't being encouraged to love one another as they had been loved. So those are the three marks, a matter of the mind, a matter of the heart, a matter of the will, the entire life being encompassed. And now I'm actually going to read this text, beginning with verse 1. That which was from the beginning. You can hear the echo of his gospel prologue that we just read. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we've seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. 
That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And it is my hope that as we study this together and begin to apply these vital signs to our own spiritual lives, that our joy will increase to the point where it's, it's a little picture of what's coming when we're promised in God's Word that at last we will have joy unspeakable and full of glory. So that's the aim, confidence, assurance of salvation, and joy. And you've been known in the past as a joyful congregation. So I'm, I'm looking for it. I'm wanting to be part of it. I'm wanting to experience it, okay? You want that, I know. You're, I think you're pretty joyful right now. I pray so. You're hoping I'll be brief. You're living in hope. I want to ask three questions of this text. And they relate to what John says he wants to proclaim to us. He says, I want to proclaim to you the word of life. And so I want to ask three questions of that. What does he mean by the word of life? What is the word of life? Secondly, 2,000 years removed, totally different culture, totally different time in history. Why should we believe it? It's a beautiful story. It's, it's brought comfort to a lot of people, but why should we believe that it's actually true, that these things actually happen? And then thirdly, if we believe and receive this word of life, what should we expect to see happen in our lives and in our communal life together? So that's where we're going. First of all, what is this word of life? In summary, it's just a, a compressed way of speaking of the gospel, good news. He's proclaiming the gospel in its very essence, and it has two aspects, as it always does, and, and that he makes clear in these verses. And the first is that this, this word of life is a word from eternity. It's not simply something that is the result of the deep thought and contemplation of a particularly gifted philosophical mind or religious leader or person with prophetic gifts. But he speaks of this word first as in the beginning. Well, what beginning? Uh, the beginning of God's dealings with his ancient people, Israel? The beginning of the heavens and the earth? No, we know because we have his gospel, what he's talking about. Remember the words we just read. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him. So if they were made through him, he was before the beginning of time, before the beginning of the creation of this cosmos. In fact, if you arranged the Bible in chronological order, I suspect that the first verse would be John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word. And after that, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that has been made. And so there's this emphasis first on the fact that John is saying, this one that I've come to proclaim to you is not simply another person like every other person you know, even the best that you know. This one 
has come from God. Now you may say, I've got that, move on. Let me just bear down on it for a minute, try to show you why I think this is so important that we grasp it. And as I told you last week, I'm always preaching to myself, so this is why it's important for me to grasp this. I don't know about you, but when I really mess up uh, in thought or word or deed, there's a part of me, in spite of having preached this and studied, you know, the truth of the gospel uh, and of the Godhead and having preached the Trinitarian faith, there's a part of me that can easily lapse, especially if I'm tired and kind of down and, oh, I can't believe I said that or I can't believe I did that, that I have this immediate picture that God the Father is really mad and Christ is kind of standing there trying to keep him from popping me a good one. And I'm saying to Jesus, you know, just yeah, keep me from the Father's displeasure, which is absolutely absurd because Jesus said, I've come to do the Father's will. He who has seen me has seen the Father. I've come to show you who the Father is. It is the Father who sent the Son in order to redeem us. It is the Father who looked upon a broken world in rebellion against him. And thank God did not think what Martin Luther thought. Luther said, if I were God, I'd kick this world to pieces. Well, thank God Luther wasn't God. Because instead of kicking this world to pieces, God sent his only son in order to make rebels and outcasts his own precious children. And so that works two ways. It means that the importance of looking carefully at everything that Jesus shows us about himself in order that we will more clearly know who God is. We see him touching outcasts, having meals with the people that the religious people thought he should never associate with. And he'd come to show the Father's heart when he said, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Of course, they're all of sin, but the self-righteous uh, are over there judging everyone else. That's the Father's heart. God is not impressed with our religious exercises. He looks within, and he wants to, to lay bare for us what's there so that it can be dealt with. And Jesus came to do that, to show us the Father's heart, but it works the other way, and then I'll move on. When we're taught about God in his glorious and transcendent sense, we need to remember that God is one being, though in three persons, and the attributes that we ascribe to this holy, majestic, and glorious God are the same attributes that belong to Jesus. And I think sometimes we get a little too palsy with Jesus, almost like, you know, just as though he's my buddy over here. No, he's, he loves you, and he is with you, and his spirit is in you, but he is holy, holy, holy. Those of you who grew up with, uh, in, in, as old-style Presbyterians and actually learned the shorter catechism, if you remember that question, what is God? It's interesting to me that in the 1640s, they didn't say, who is God? But what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, truth. I'm sorry they left out love, but uh, they were meeting in hard times and were getting ready to kill the king. So I guess they can be excused for forgetting about that. But nonetheless, 
I mean, this majestic statement about the attributes of this holy God, that's who Jesus is as well. We need to remember that. Okay, this is the one that he came to proclaim. He is both from afar, but he's come among us. He's joined himself to us, and not just for a moment in time. I think sometimes we think it was really beautiful, the incarnation. He came and, you know, Eugene Peterson, if I remember correctly, in the message, translates John 1.14 as, and the Word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. That he, dwelt he, he came, and, and He kept our flesh. In the mystery of the incarnation, the one through whom the universe was spoken, the one who was with God in the beginning, tabernacled Himself within His mother's womb. We can't fathom the, the kenosis, the pouring out of Himself. It, it's beyond our ken, and it's not been revealed to us. But when Jesus was born and was lying there, a little baby, I don't think that He was doing infinitesimal calculus to keep from being bored and trying to remember, now, at what point do I pretend like I'm learning to speak? He became one of us. He humbled Himself, became a baby who had to be changed and fed and protected and clothed, and He grew up with that. We read that He was tempted in all ways as we are. Sometimes when we're tempted, we feel defeated. We think, you know, I shouldn't still be tempted by that. If I were a better Christian, uh, I wouldn't be tempted like that. I confessed to you last week that apart from God's grace, I'm like Oscar Wilde who, who once said, I can resist anything but temptation. I just, you know, there it is. It comes on strong. And one of the ways the enemy defeats us is by making us think that by feeling the temptation, we're already defeated. No! Jesus was, was tempted in all ways as we are, the Scriptures tell us, yet without ever yielding to it. So actually, He knew temptation better than we did because He took it all the way to the end. He never collapsed. He took it until it, it released because it couldn't defeat Him. And then, having accomplished redemption, He raised up a human body in this new glorified body that's one day, one day will be ours in the day of resurrection, and took it into the presence of God, and for eternity will bear the scars of our redemption. I mean, it's, it's beyond anything we can comprehend, but we dare not just think simplistically about the incarnation. This is the God-man that He's proclaiming to us, the utterly unique God-man who came. Why did He do this? Why did He… He came for you. He came for me because He loved us that much. He would not leave us in our brokenness and rebellion and sin. He came to make us His. Why believe it? Beautiful story, but I mean, you know, John tells us, he says, what I'm about to say to you, I heard, maybe heard it first through the prophetic writings as he was growing up, the promise of the one who would come. And then he'd been a disciple of John the Baptist, and so he'd maybe been there when John pointed and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He'd heard this, and then he said, and, and we've seen with our eyes 
and we've looked upon, which is we didn't just see, we began gazing upon him, concentrating upon him. He now became a focus to us. We were studying him, watching every move. And we've touched him with our hands. Remember that in the Gospels, John is portrayed as kind of being like a little brother to Jesus. And when they would eat in the East, they didn't sit in chairs as we do, they reclined. And it seems that John was the one who reclined next to Jesus on his chaise. And if somebody wanted to ask Jesus something, they'd say, hey, John, would you ask him? And John would lean back. There was this intimacy of family friendship. And he says, I knew him. Every one of these disciples who had been such a coward that after making bold profession, when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, and they all said, not a, well, they said, is it I, Lord, except for Peter? And Peter said, these clowns may, I won't. And of course, he more famously than any. But they ran from him, and yet within a few days, every single one of them was standing in the place where Jesus had been arrested, tried, and crucified, boldly proclaiming, and they would go one by one after another to a painful death, testifying that what they had heard and seen and gazed upon and touched was true. And I contend that a group of people like that Somebody would have broken and said, okay, okay, I guarantee you I would have. If this was made up, about the time they showed me a cross, I just said, where's the pinch of incense, Caesar's Lord? Okay, let me go home. But they didn't. Why? Because they'd seen and heard and touched with their hands. So the credibility of these witnesses and Paul deals with this beautifully in 1 Corinthians 15 where he really lays out uh, an entire argument about the numbers of people who saw him risen from the dead. And Paul said, some of them are still alive. Go ask them. Get them to tell you their story. But I want, I take this occasion to read you one of my favorite poems which touches on this very thing and in a very beautiful way makes the case that John makes here and that Paul made in 1 Corinthians 15. How many of you have ever heard of the American writer John Updike? Are are you familiar with Updike? Updike, when I was growing up, was always referred to John Updike, the prince of American writers. Um, Don't know whether he appreciated that or not, but that was his title. He began by writing very clever poems and short stories in The New Yorker and then graduated in the 60s to novels that rather ruthlessly depicted life in America, the seamy side of middle-class and upper-class life in America. And so people were astonished when he submitted a poem to a religious festival in Marblehead, Massachusetts. Those of you who are sailors will know that Marblehead, like Annapolis, is a great sailing center and a beautiful town north of Boston. a place where one would not expect religious people to be overly religious, certainly not American writers like Updike. So he submitted this poem to this religious festival, and it made big news, as you'll see. Thank you. (laughs) Make no mistake, 
If he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecules re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. It was not as the flowers, each soft spring recurrent, it was not as his spirit in the mouths and fuddled eyes of the 11 apostles, it was as his flesh, ours, the same hinged thumbs and toes, the same valved heart that pierced, died, withered, paused, and then regathered out of enduring might new strength to enclose. Let us not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping transcendence, making of the event a parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of earlier ages. Let us walk through the door. The stone is rolled back, not paper mache, not a stone in a story, but the vast rock of materiality that in the slow grinding of time will eclipse for each of us the wide light of day. And I love this. He says, and if we have an angel at the tomb, make it a real angel, weighty with Max Planck's quanta, vivid with hair, opaque in the dawn light, robed in real linen, spun on a definite loom. Let us not seek to make it less monstrous for our own convenience, our own sense of beauty, lest awakened in one unthinkable hour, we are embarrassed by the miracle and crushed by remonstrance. In other words, he's saying, if Christ had not risen, the church would have vanished ages ago, and its life comes from the reality, the truth of this testimony that the apostles brought, that Christ is risen physically from the dead. It's seven stanzas at Easter, the title of that. So the reason to believe it is simply because the credibility of the witnesses, and I will sometimes, and I'll get off it in a second, but I hear sometimes bright people say, but all the proof you have, don't you have extra biblical proof? I mean, all that you've got is this religious document. And anybody who says that, I realize, is either dishonest or doesn't know about history. Because all of the documents from ancient history were, were dedicated to the gods, every one of them. The Roman historians dedicated everything they did to the gods of Rome. Every document in those days was a religious document. That's all we have. And if we can't use that, then we don't know history at all. But there's something stronger here, and that's the ongoing testimony. He says we're proclaiming this so that you, as you receive it, enter into this and become with us witnesses to its reality, which takes me to the final point, and it's just this. What should we expect to see happen? Two things. One, he says, I'm proclaiming this because I want you to share in this fellowship, our fellowship, share in fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. And so as you come into fellowship with us, you come into fellowship with God Himself, and you now become a witness, one who is able to hear and then see and then gaze and then touch. How in the world do we 2,000 years later, touch Christ's body because we are his body. The incarnation continues through the church of Jesus Christ. His spirit is in us. And so fellowship 
in the New Testament is not what we in America have made it. We have fellowship halls, and I mean, I'm not criticizing you if you call your hall fellowship hall. Every church I've served did too. But we tend to think of fellowship as kind of crossing arms, swaying, and singing kumbaya. And that's not what it was in the Bible. The word itself means common life, shared life, one life among the people. We see it in Acts 2 when no one said anything was his own, and so there was not a needy one among them. And the world looked on and said, look at how they love one another. Look at this. In a divided, hostile world of people who can't get along, the church shone as a group of people who were learning to love one another from the heart and to be of one life together. That's the fellowship into which he invites us. And so I would just say to you, if there's anyone from whom you are alienated, anyone whom you hope you don't bump into in church or in town, just take care of it this week, would you? This is really easy. You just call them up and say, you know what? I have felt alienated. Could we just sit down? Could we talk it through, pray it through, and then embrace and go our way? We may not agree about anything, but let's love each other. If we are part of the body of Christ, can we do that? That's how a congregation and an individual gets really healthy, just by refusing to hold on to things because our Lord didn't hold on to our stuff. He just took it and bore it and put it as far away as the east is from the west. And he says, now I don't even remember it. When I look at you, I don't see that stuff anymore. I see, I see you the way that you will one day be when you have been made new and glorious. I see it now. And we should be learning to see one another that way even now, the fellowship of God's people. And the other part is, he says, I want your joy to be complete. Don't you want that? I want that. I can't stand walking around unhappy. Um, constitutionally, I can't. Even if sometimes my face falls into that kind of way, if you see me, uh, you can realize there's a gloomy-looking, very joyful person. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> Hopefully my face doesn't look like that. Um, the key is that this joy that he's given us is the strength in which we stand and face life. And it is only out of that joy that we can make him known. I said last week, don't think that if you can't do the right thing for the right reason that you shouldn't do it. Go ahead and do it because it's the right thing. I want to make an exception. Don't bear witness to people out of a sense of guilt and shame when you're thinking, oh, I've got to share the gospel with them, or ah, you'll do more harm than good. One final illustration of this, and I'm done. My father, um, my father was a North Carolinian of broader shoulders than this son of his, who'd uh, gone off to military school. He had a deep, beautiful voice way, way down in the low range. But during the Depression, his dad said to him, son, there's no work here in North Carolina. You need to go up to Chicago. The Ford plant is hiring you. Get work there. So he went up, and it was during the days when Capone and John Dillinger were 
controlling most of Chicago, and especially Cicero, that was their headquarters. So Dad, the Ford plant was in Cicero in those days. Dad had worked all day at the Ford plant. He was exhausted. Some moody people had gotten a hold of him. He'd come to Christ. He'd grown up Presbyterian, but it was a moralistic thing. He was trying to be a good guy, but he didn't know that he needed to be born again. So these moody people had gotten a hold of him, and he'd been born anew, and he was told D.L. Moody never went to bed without witnessing to someone. That was his promise to himself, and every one of us should take so Dad made that promise. And this night, he was exhausted. It was cold. If you've been in Chicago, the, it, the wind off the lake actually has a name. It's called the hawk. And the hawk was blowing, and his collar was turned up, and he hadn't shaved his stubble. And the sun is going down, and he's going to catch a streetcar to go home, and he realizes, ah, I haven't witnessed anybody. And he looks up, and there's this prosperous-looking gentleman in a frock coat and a bowler hat standing under the street lamp, kind of looking down at my dad uh, uh, a little bit uncomfortably and trying to move further under the light. So dad's thinking, I've got to share the gospel with this guy, or he's going to die, go out into eternity. His blood will be on my hands. So dad's trying to get up the nerve to go. He just doesn't want to do it, but he's got to do it. So he'd, he'd walk toward the guy, and the guy would go further under the lamp. And Dad would turn and say, I can't do that. Yeah, I've got to do it. And he'd thrust. So this guy's watching this shady-looking dude, um, you know. And all of a sudden, Dad saw the streetcar coming. And he thought, it's now or never. I've got to do it. So he strode up to the man and said the only thing he could think of, Mr., are you prepared to die? And the guy, the guy sprinted for the streetcar. The doors opened. The guy just dove on. And Dad just waved the car around, realized that was not the right approach. Um, and he said, I'm sure that guy, to his dying day, told his grandchildren the story of the day one of Capone's men almost got him. He didn't realize it was one of God's foolish, uh, foolish men. I, I say that because people are drawn to joy. They're drawn to congregations that are filled with joy. They're drawn to people. We all are. And the joy of the Lord not a false smile when your heart is breaking, but the deep joy that's there even when a Christian is going through grief. I, I can testify to that. I lost my wife two years ago. And the joy of knowing where she is and of knowing that I'll be with her again at last. Hopefully not for a little bit, but <laughs> hope I get to stay with you a while. But, but that joy sustains us. And John wants that for you. He wants it for me. Do you want it? Go get it. It's God's will for you. You don't have to say, if it's, if it's your will, grant me your joy. You say, Father, you've promised through your word. I want to start walking in, in this joy and become strong. Father, how I thank you for this congregation. I thank you for its history. I thank you for the churches that it has planted and for the ways in season and out of season that you have continued to use it for your glory. And I pray that, I pray that we're on the cusp of a, a whole new day, a new chapter, a new period in which your joy is manifested in worship, in study, in preaching, in life together, in outreach to the community and to the ends of the earth. So get glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.